Well, good morning and greetings in Christ's worthy name as we gather uh, one more time uh, in front of His Word. I have been blessed to be here today. Um, If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Let us read here uh, from verse 41 uh, and following. I believe I'll read verse 41 through the end of the chapter. And as we remember, um, the chapter starts with the miracle of the bread that the Lord broke and multiplied and fed 5,000 men plus uh, women and children, I think it is. In another place it says, and uh, we spoke uh, last week about how Christ um, used that miracle uh, to springboard into the bread which comes down from heaven. And he describes himself as that very bread for us that should we believe in him, we would have everlasting life. And we looked at that at length. Uh, We spoke about how there is an agreement between the Father and the Son and how, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Um, So as we pick up this uh, portion here in verse 41, let's read to to the end of the chapter. John 6, 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, and maybe I should say, end quote. Uh, Christ said there, he was quoting the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God, end quote. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. 
The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And we had just read that he who eats this bread will not die. Now here is the positive side stating that there is much more than just not dying. There's life. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples then, that when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were or who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples were, went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your word would speak to us. And Father, that it would minister to our hearts the very intent of wherewith you gave it. Father, we pray that we might hide behind your word, that it would be your word and its exposition that would come forth. Father God, we bless you, we praise you for the great courage and confidence that this wonderful passage of Scripture gives to us. And so, Father, we, we ask for your blessing, we ask for your presence, we ask for your your unction to uh, have this word minister to our hearts. Go up and down the rows and bless and keep us through Christ. Amen. So I've titled this message this morning, 
It is God who works. It is God who works. <clears throat> and if, if someone would turn the heat down, I think it's, it's uh, probably going to be getting too high. I th- it feels like it's too hot up here. Uh, thank you, Caleb. Um, so this passage, I would like to... Uh, maybe it's the passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture does include in its own context the reception that it received. And the uh, passage itself indicates, or the response indicates, that from a human, human perspective, that this was a hard saying. There are hard sayings here, and who can understand it? And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say that it's a difficult saying. He doesn't deny that it's a hard saying. And this, this uh, analogy that Christ was speaking about his body, you know, eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood and partaking of him, that it, would, it, would, that it was a, an analogy, I think, that you know, to the Jews, it was just a, you know, it was a, um, it was repulsive. And it, that, I believe, is one of the reasons that it is a hard saying here in this passage. But I would, I would present to you that I think that for us, it is a hard saying in a different way, for a different reason. That we understand that Jesus was speaking about his body and his blood in a, in a, with, in a, uh, as an analogy, as a, a way to, to show to us that we must partake of Christ. And, and if we go back where he says that, that the bread which comes down from heaven is actually my flesh, which is an indication of the cross work that he will soon perform for us. The broken body of Jesus Christ paying for my sin. That it is his flesh which is his... Um, is what saves us, so to speak. It's not just His flesh that is a blessing to us in the sense that He broke it for us. There, there's a great blessing in not only is His death a blessing, His life is one as well, but His death bought everything for us, you see. So His death is what allows us into the realm of blessing from Christ. And then His life ministers to us as well. But it would not minister to us, I believe not, if He had not first bought us with His blood. And so we understand that this is an analogy here. That we are not cannibalistic. And that it also, and we, will, we might address that, that it does not speak necessarily of the communion service. Even though the communion service speaks to this. So, um, I think the challenge lies in these hard sayings. I think the challenge lies in, for us, is that we accept the Savior as He is. 
that we accept the Savior as He is. And by that, let's think back to what wanted to happen after the breaking of the bread. Remember? They wanted to make Him a king. They were overzealous, had a misplaced zeal, did not understand the nature of His kingdom. I would present to you that the reason this is a hard saying to us is that we would maybe like his kingdom to be a little different than what it is. And that we do not do what these very people did with a misplaced zeal wanted to crown him as king of the Jews. Was he king? Yes. But it wasn't his current mission. His current mission at that point was to die for our sins. He will come back and rule as king. So, I think the difficulty lies in that we may well wish his kingdom to be a little different. And I don't know why that would be so. We have a glorious king. A glorious king. All right, let's begin. We ended last week at verse 40. And I was, I was kind of glad for the opportunity to preach back to back because this passage is so entangled together. It is so much a part of, of, its, of, uh, of the other message. But uh, So we ended at verse 40 where it says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. What a glorious verse of Scripture from the very words of our, from the very mouth of our Savior. And so God's will is that everyone who sees the Son and believes on Him may have everlasting life. These who see, in verse 40, and believe are the ones who are given to the Son in verse 37. He would... He, he, the Father is given to Christ those who He would give, so that, they, that He would give them everlasting life. Interestingly, Jesus prays this very prayer in John 17, and I'll just read here in verse 2. As you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life, the Son of God should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given to Him. To as many as you, he says, have given to him. And so, uh, Jesus is praying this prayer. And he is saying, glorify your son. That your son also may glorify you. And so this is the nature of our salvation is ultimately to the glory of God. And so, this giving, this granting of verse 37 is not apart from faith in those who were given. This is an important point. That, if, if, that in, in the salvation of God's people, there is something going on behind the scenes that, that, are, that is often not acknowledged or is not understood. 
that there is something going on behind the scene. But the evidence of that is your personal faith that you have believed, you have trusted, you have reached out to Jesus Christ and you are personally putting your stock in Him. This is, this is evidence. As a matter of fact, their faith is the evidence of the transaction between Father and Son. There is evidence of a historic transaction, this granting, this giving of verse 37. It is the evidence, brothers and sisters, of that transaction, but it is not the cause of it. Their faith is the evidence of a transaction prior but it is not their faith. The faith is not the cause of the transaction. Does that make sense? It is rather the faith that is the evidence of that transaction some, sometime in the past. And let me, let me bring this in. Paul uses a term in Titus 1, verse 1, that brings these two key elements together. And I, I love this in Titus 1, verse 1, where these two elements, that, that, um, that giving, that granting from the Father to the Son, and then the faith of those who receive that blessing. Paul says here in Titus 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. And the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. I am this sort of apostle. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. So, so on the, you know, God's elect people, they demonstrate their election by their faith. And Paul is saying, I am this apostle who is presenting. I am the sent one. I am that delegate from God according to the faith of God's elect. I'm preaching that gospel. And so, as we consider these words of our Lord from verses 41 here in John through 59, we must humble ourselves and say truly our salvation is from the Lord. The closing 12 verses of John chapter 6 reveals, basically, it reveals the response of his listeners, of those who heard. And we see here in verse 41, it was the Jews. And most times the Jews, that, that word Jews in the, in, the, in the gospel is indicative of, of, of religious opposition. We, we have it uh, in verse... Um, 510, it says, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured. You remember, you know, he healed this man uh, back in John 5, and it was the Jews who, who said, well, you know, what are you doing carrying your bed? And then it was the Jews who sought to kill him, verse 16. And it was the Jews who, who sought all the more to kill him. And now we see that the Jews complained in verse 41 of John chapter 6 about him. When you come back to the end of the of the book, like in verse 60, for instance, you have, and in verse 66, you have his disciples. 
it may not necessarily be, I mean, it may be possible that these are one and the same group. But specifically here it says the Jews complained about him in verse 41, and then his disciples complained about it in verse 60 and in verse 66. So um, we begin here where the Jews complained about Christ. They grumbled among themselves about him. They had a difficulty. And primarily they had a difficulty because of what he taught them. He taught them that he was the bread which came down from heaven. They grumbled among themselves about this teaching, and it it just reminded me of their fathers. Remember, they said back in uh, verse 30, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna. But you know how they ate the manna? They ate it with grumbling. It says in uh, Numbers, I think it's Numbers 21, yes. Numbers 21 and verse 5, it says, there is nothing before us here except this manna. I really should just flip back and, and you just hold your place here in John. I'll read that for you because it's such an interesting passage because it's so strongly worded. They ate the manna that they were so proud of. The, their descendants were proud of the fact that their fathers ate manna, but this is the attitude that they had about it. Um, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. The gift of God was worthless bread to them. Actually, it says, our soul detests this worthless bread. And so we have that very same mentality, that very same idea here in uh, the Jews grumbled about him and said, this bread which comes down from heaven, they thought they knew him. Notice, and they said, is not this Jesus? Is not this the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Well, they thought they knew him. Was Jesus actually the son of Joseph? No. No. See, see, a misunderstanding of his, even his earthly origins. See how important the virgin birth is? This very simple truth that they did not understand his origins misled them. And so they took offense that he would claim heavenly origins, like he arrived from heaven. They took offense. And let me, let me just think about this a minute. If you would have grown up in Galilee with Jesus of Nazareth, and you knew Jesus of Nazareth as being in the house of Joseph and Mary. And you grew up 
knowing some of these things about Christ. And in a nutshell, I think this is what's wrong if this passage is difficult for us. Is that we have historically misunderstood this intent. We have historically not understood the gospel. And then when Jesus' very own teaching comes to us, it is a hard saying. How can he say that I cannot come? Well, he says it clearly that you can't come unless the Father draws you. And he says it twice in this passage. And so I think the nature of this is that we have historically misunderstood the gospel. We have historically had too much of an, uh, an appreciation of our ability, you see. We have a high view of man's righteousness, but it's actually self-righteousness. It is a misunderstanding of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Otherwise, this passage is of such a wonderful nature that if you are born again, you know how much comfort this passage is to you? That it was outside of my doing. Therefore, I have great confidence because it was divinely wrought in me. No, I can trust. I can, I can pursue without fear. As the songs we sang this morning, I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh and cry, Abba, Father, Abba. So praise God. So they grew up with him. They thought, okay, this is Jesus, the carpenter's son, etc., etc., etc. Notice what Jesus says. This helped me a lot. That the two verses, 41 and 42, came before 43 and 44. Jesus responds to them in verse 43. He says, stop grumbling. You're not going to be able to figure it out on your own. That's basically what he's saying. Your natural state will not grasp these truths. You will not grasp these truths. Stop grumbling. Actually, you cannot. You cannot come to me, he says, unless the Father draws you. It is not entirely you're up to you whether you come to me or not. Actually, he says, you can't come. There's an inability here to come. And I would like to say that this is an amazing statement of inability. It's an amazing statement of inadequacy. We're incapable. We're incapable of coming unless the Father draws us. And, and interestingly, it doesn't say that there's going to be some of you who are so hard-hearted that you will not come or you cannot come. No, it says no one comes. No one. This is a universal statement. And it agrees with Romans 3 where it says that no man has sought after me. This is the nature of the fall is that we have... We have, it has so grievously affected us that we, we can't come unless there's something done. 
It is a universal no one, no one. It's all inclusive. And this is cannot. It is not, may not. It is not an issue of permission, but rather of inability, unable, powerless. Brothers and sisters, how can this be? How can this be? Let me say, it is because they were natural men. They were natural men. This is a difficult saying that, that we, we have to, in the house of God, we have to teach the Word of God. And the Word of God says that you cannot come unless there's something done in you by my Father that is drawing you and bringing you. And I want to go to 1 Corinthians 2. And I, I, I was here in the worship time. When 1 Corinthians 2 came up, I was like, okay, Lord, you know what you're doing. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, I want to read this chapter. And, and I, want to, I want to simply try to, you know, I had this, I had this uh, question in my, my own mind. How unique, I was just, just think about it. In your own mind, how unique is this teaching in John chapter 6? How unique is it to John chapter 6? What is your thought in your own mind about, wow, this is a unique passage of Scripture. The principles taught herein, where else are they found? And you think about that. And we come to John chapter 6 because it is so in your face. It is the Lord Jesus speaking. He does not even, he does not even mince His word. He does not back up. He, you know, he says, so you're offended? How would you like to see me go back to where I used to be? He just keeps pushing the point, it seems like. He doesn't mince His words. He doesn't back off. He doesn't explain Himself. It's amazing. And so I want, to, I want to read other passages of Scripture. I would love to be able to, to kind of bring you along and show you that the teachings and the principles of John chapter 6 are not unique to John chapter 6. So let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'll just reread what you read, brother. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." Now please follow. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard. Okay, that's the natural man. 
nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Did you recognize, did you catch that? The only way you're going to comprehend what is in Christ Jesus for you is if the Spirit has revealed it to you. It's the only way. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now now catch verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. There you have it. It's the same thing that John 6.44 is saying. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? You see, you think we can capture him against his will and make him king? And tell him, we want your administration to be such, such, and such? No, who, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. These things, this, this, this comprehension of what Christ is to us, those things are spiritually discerned. Now, I want to go to Romans 8. I simply want to bring another passage of Scripture here that shows that this is not unique to John chapter 6. Romans 8. And I want to read Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, as we consider this hard saying in John chapter 6. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free, from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through my flesh. It was weak through the flesh. My flesh was weak, you see. What the law could not do because it, it employed my weakness, my weak flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of this great law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now listen, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That means that the carnal mind hates God. 
it is employed about expressing hatred toward God. That's if you look up this word enmity, it speaks of being an enemy. That's how it's translated. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject. Why is it enmity with God, the carnal mind? The reason is because it is not subject to God. And if someone is not subject to God, they are God's enemies. It's just that simple. If, if we are refusing to subject ourselves to the law of God, then we are at enmity against God. Notice what he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So the carnal mind cannot even be subject to the law of God. There it is again in John 6, No one can come to me unless there's something done. It says, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh may not please God. No, they cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So you, you see the, the absolute profound statements of, if, if this is not occurring, if, if the Spirit of God is not within you, then you're an unregenerate, rank unbeliever. You cannot come to Christ Unless he does something in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give, your, will give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. So the carnal mind is enmity against God. And Romans 6 speaks of us in our natural state as 1 Corinthians speaks of us, natural man. Romans 6 speaks of the natural man as being a slave of sin. You see, we don't have a free will. Do you understand that we do not have a free will? Our will is not free from sin in our old man. Our will is enslaved to sin as an unregenerate person. See, that being a slave to sin, sin commands us to do things, okay? If you are a slave to somebody, it, it's, it's the boss of your life. It, it is ruling you. It, it causes you to do things. It, it is in charge, now, now, that doesn't mean that Adam was created that way. See, Adam was created perfect. He was created perfect. He was given a, a command. And as we know, Adam had, the, Adam had the choice to obey or not obey. He had a free will. Interestingly, when the choice... Interestingly, he had no inclination to disobey. 
There was no inclination in his heart to disobey God. He was perfect. But he was, he was perfect, but he was fallible. But he didn't have the seed within himself. The influence to sin came from without Adam. From outside of his person. From outside of his spirit. From outside of the realm of Adam. Satan presented the temptation to sin. Because Adam had a free will, he fell for it. He took it. He took the bait. And sin corrupted. Sin went so far in in Adam, brothers and sisters, that it entangled his will. And it corrupted his will to the point that we don't choose anymore what is good for us. Of ourselves. We don't choose what is good for us. But see, we are not Adam. We are born in sin. And so in our first state, we choose sin. We do that. To the point where Jesus said, you know, you, you cannot come, you Jews. You, you, you are, you're, you're grumbling over here about my hard saying. And you think you know who I am, but you, you need a spiritual revelation about who I am. You see this teaching. I believe this teaching shows us that there are fewer Christians than we think. But it also teaches in John verse 37 and 38 that we're more thoroughly saved than we thought we were. Those who are saved are thoroughly saved. But there are fewer of us saved than we think. This is the nature of this hard saying. It's the nature of this difficult passage. And I tremble to preach out of John 6. But I am not true to my calling to preach God's Word if I don't preach John 6. And the fact is, there's great comfort for us in John 6. Please, see this. Notice here what Christ says of the Jews in John 5, verse 40, where He says, but you are not willing to come to Me that you may have life. He says, you are not willing. Why are they not willing? Because they are bound in sin. Their will is enslaved to sin. See, verse 44, where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44 reinforces John 3, verses 3 through 7. So what is the solution? What is the solution to this problem? You must be born of the Spirit. And by that, the Spirit of God must come in and change your heart. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, I will write my, I will make a new covenant with them in that day. I will write my law on their hearts and in their minds. 
He says here, Most assuredly I say to you, Jesus said this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not he may not. It's simply he cannot. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Well, that's a wonderful question. Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb? And here we go, this natural perspective. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, okay, here is the problem. That which is born of the flesh remains flesh, you see. The flesh can only produce more flesh. You can harness the flesh. You can put a law on it. You can make it legalistic. But it is still just flesh. It is still flesh. As long as we employ the flesh to fix the flesh, we are producing more flesh. You see. So God is teaching us here in John 6 that our problem is more profound than we knew it to be. That our flesh cannot fix itself. And if it could have, we would have no reason to glory in the Lord and His cross work. We would not need the bread which came down from heaven, you see. If we could fix ourselves. But we can't do it. We can only harness it. We can beca- and the law employs the flesh. But because the flesh is weak, we do not, per- we do not deal with the, the will of God. We do not pursue God because we are too weak in our flesh. And so he says that we must be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit, see, that is also true to its nature. It is Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? That if you are born of the Spirit, the fruit that comes out of your life is now spiritual. Do not marvel, brothers and sisters, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you have heard the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, you must be more than flesh. And when one becomes born of the Spirit, suddenly, suddenly, we're like, Lord, what can I do? Where can I go? How can I follow you? See, our hearts are just transformed, you see. Now let's continue. John 6, in verse 45. I I want to show you something. Notice the drawing of verse 44. Remember it says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now I didn't say that. That's the Lord Jesus himself. No one can come to me unless my Father draws him, and then I will raise him up at the last day. The drawing of verse 44 is the teaching of verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Isaiah 54, verse 13. Jesus applies this principle to those who come to Christ. He says, no one can, he says in verse 45, It is written in the prophets, 
and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, see, that's, that's, that's really interesting that, that those who, who have heard and learned from the Father end up coming to Jesus Christ. And see, I think here is where we can be a, a, a part of this. Where we can be, we can be teaching. We, we have an opportunity to teach about the Father. We have an opportunity to, to present, to, to, to instruct. God the Father has taken up their education. These have been taught by God. Those who, have, who come to Christ, these have been taught by God. They have been given spiritual insight to come to Christ. God the Father has taken up their education. And the great theme of this curriculum, brothers and sisters, is Christ and Him crucified, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, I I don't want to know anything else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so this great curriculum is that God the Father is teaching those who would come to Christ is Jesus and Him crucified. Remember, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What, what this verse 45 is teaching is that God is using information to draw us to Christ. God has given us many things to teach us about Himself. His Word His church, believing parents. But there is still the issue of the will. There's still the issue of the will. So we... Let me just flip back just a little bit into John chapter 7 where he says this way in in verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? The Jews were astounded that this man could teach with such authority. Remember, in other places they taught with authority. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, he said, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. See, interestingly, if anyone wills, why does he bring this will in here again? If anyone wills to do God's will, well, the only way that's possible if God has worked in his life, because no one seeks after God. But if the Holy Spirit is working and drawing and as I said, and drawing and teaching. You see, and and he's changing your will, sometimes unbeknownst to us. I must confess it was unbeknownst to me. When I was saved, I didn't understand these great truths about what was going on behind the scenes, you see. But my will was being worked on, it was being reformed, it was being recreated. And then when, it, when I was presented with the gospel call as we heard out of Matthew 11. Come unto me. All of a sudden, that first fruit of a transformed heart came forth in the new birth. 
And I was born again by the Spirit of my God. And you know, I was very interested with the verse just prior to Matthew eleven twenty-eight. I want you just to look back at that verse. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. And I want to show you that the heart of Christ is that you come. That you come. At that time, Jesus answered and said in verse 25 of Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. He did that, didn't he? Those who thought they were wise, those Pharisees who thought they had it all buttoned down, he, he hid it from them. But you revealed them to babies. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. The meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, the, the, the humble, the, the meek in heart. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the One to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then notice the very next verse. The Son's will is that you come to Me. You see that? And, but we, we see, clearly see in the verse prior that no one comes to... The, to the Father and his, and his understanding of the Father unless the Son reveals Him to Him. You see that? You have the same picture of the faith of God's elect. One more time right here. Come to me is the Spirit of Christ. He says, my will is that you come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And so, John 7, as I read there, those who have that will addressed, if the will is inclined, or should I say renewed, that person shall know the doctrine of God. That's how Christ was saying, if anyone wills to do my will, he shall know whether I speak of myself or whether it is from God. Because we have an, inter, we have an inner teacher, you see. And that inner teacher of the Holy Spirit always always, always, always agrees with the doctrine of God. Always. And He even validates to us. He, he verifies that this is the truth, that Holy Spirit within us. But remember, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, you see. He doesn't know the things about God, but the Spirit reveals them to us. Yes, the deep things of God. The Spirit reveals them to us. Here, here the Spirit reveals that the doctrine that another man preaches that Christ preaches, that Spirit reveals that it is the truth, you see. And so it's all about, brothers, it's all, sisters, it's all about being born again. And as we think about the information that God uses to draw us, I want to, I want to read to you in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 10, remember I said, I don't often use this amount of Scripture in my sermons because I like to stay, 
I like to uh, dance with the one I brought. But there is um, there's a real need for the scripture to interpret the scripture. Especially here. I just want to show you that the, the, this doctrine is throughout the Bible. Colossians 3 and verse 10, and have, put on, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. See, now that you've got the power of God with inside of you, now you can put these things on. Now you can live it out. And now you, it, that, that work of the Spirit of Christ within you, it is, it is a work of renewing in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. Who created the new man? The same one who created the old man. The first man, I should say. The same one who created the first man. God created Adam. Adam fell. God is in the business of recreating us. And he does it, he he is renewing us in knowledge. There is information that God uses to draw us, to teach us, to bring us to himself. But it is not just information that we need. We need transformation we need reformation even regeneration that is just regeneration is just another way of saying recreation to regenerate you know generate to generate means to 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 be born to put the re in front of it, it means again we need to be regenerated you see And that regeneration is done by the Spirit of God. And here the new man is described as being renewed in knowledge. This education is according to the standard or image of Him who created this new person. And so the issue is not just lack of information. The need is for regeneration. But God uses, listen, God does use information. But He ultimately recreates. And I think here is where we can take hope in in ministering to those who are lost among us. Give them all the information that you have about Jesus Christ, about God. Teach them. Invite them to the gospel. Tell them that you must be saved. You must be born again unless you be, unless you be condemned. And so this is information that is given to us. And even God the Father uses that. It says that everyone will be taught of God. And now, in Philippians 2, just another passage of God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, in verse 12, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, how do you like the concept that your life is all about God's pleasure? Does that go against the grain? That's exactly what a Christian is. That's what he's interested in. God's good pleasure. Oh, if God were only pleased with me. I could live or die if God would be pleased with me. You know what the exhortation is here is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why is it called to work it out? You can't work out what's not been worked in. The very next verse says it is God who worked it in you. You're called to work it out. Work it out. Do so with fear and trembling because it is God who's about this work. You see, it's not just your employer. No, it's God who initiated this. And so we should be in fear and trembling that we do work it out. But notice, it is not only, it is for God who works in you both to will and to do. And you know what first comes? Most times it's your will must be engaged before you'll do anything. We know this to be true. Sometimes it, sometimes it's, you know, we recognize with our children. The will is reinforced by the paddle. The will is brought around. I told you to do your chores. Well, I have no will to do it. Well, let me, let me, let me uh, adjust your will, you see. We understand this concept, but God must first do that to us. We must be born again. And so, verse 45 teaches us that we as believers should be about teaching the words of God. Teaching the words of God. Well, goodness, there's so much more here. But it's not formality. It's not manipulation. It's not coercion. But teaching. Teaching. Planting. Watering. Would that God give the increase. You see, it's not by the certain kind of music. No, it's by the Spirit of God working. And you know, if you want the Spirit of God to work, you must deal with the truth of God. You absolutely have to stay with the truth if you want God to bless it. So we don't have options. We don't get to preach what we want to preach. We, preached, we have to preach the Word. Well, there's so much here in between the closing this uh, this this verse 45, um, but it has been covered earlier. Uh, not that is not it, that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, but they're dead. They're dead. You guys boasted that, my, that our fathers ate the manna, but they died. 
Christ is saying, I'm offering you something that if you should eat of it, you will never die. And then he goes on in the last portion of here. Um, let, me, let me read verse 60 here quickly. There are two responses here in verse 60 through 71. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, verse 60 said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? It's tough. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this stumble you? Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Would you believe then if you see him go up in the clouds? as they did later. Would you believe then? Well, they had just seen miracle after miracle and they still wouldn't believe Him because they were intent on the natural thing. Notice what He says in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The Spirit is what makes alive. You can employ the flesh, but it will not help you. You see. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. (laughs) It's amazing. The Lord knows those who are His, doesn't He? We can all be... I, I can wear a cloak of hypocrisy, but that doesn't mean the Lord's fooled. You might... I might fool you. I might fool you for 10 years or 30 years. The Lord's not fooled. He knows who believes and who doesn't. There are some of you who don't believe. He knew who, who they were and who would betray Him. From that time, and then He said in verse 65, He just, re-ir- he just re-irritated them. He re-irritated, I can't say the word, re-irritated them, or the same truth. But he also, I think, re-irritated them. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. How much of a clearer word do we need? you know why this is important to us? It is important that we know that we cannot save anybody except the Spirit of God must save them. And if you want the Spirit of God to save your children, who do you cry out to? God. You weep and wail and cry before God until He answers you. It's not accomplished, brothers and sisters, by soft music. It is by crying out to God that He would grant unto us eternal life. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no longer with Him. Well, listen... They just revealed that they weren't disciples. 
You know, I, I think it was Matthew Henry, and I didn't, wa- I didn't write, to write the quote down. But he said so much to the effect that no true believer ultimately falls away. Those who leave off their following Christ are just revealed to be pretending hypocrites, ultimately. They have shown themselves to be something that they've never been. Or they've shown themselves to be something when the reality is not there. And when they ultimately finally walk away from Christ... It is not that they fell away from from faith. It is they fell away from a profession of faith. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Well, Simon Peter answered, Lord, whom shall we go? And I need to close. But I want to just point out that there were followers of Jesus Christ here who said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when there's a hard saying, brothers and sisters, you fall back on what you know to be true. I want to encourage you. When there's a hard saying in Scripture and you wrestle and you wrestle and you wrestle with it, that you come back to what you know to be true, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the Son of the living God and that He has done a work in us and we have come to know and believe that and that you rest on your on truth that you know to be true in your personal life that you have felt this. I want to encourage you with that. Is there, are there hard sayings? Peter doesn't deny that it's a hard saying. When Christ says, you know, are you all going to leave too? He said, well, no. Then Jesus answered them and said, well, you cast your net pretty wide, Peter. He said, we, and I believe this meaning the 12 of us, we have come to know these things about you. And Jesus basically said, look, Peter, you've cast your net too wide. There are number, there's, a num- there's one among us who's a devil. Do you see how difficult it is for us to go around about amongst our brothers and sisters and say, we have come to know and believe. Listen. Jesus said, there's one among you that's a devil. And so, I just want to close John chapter 6 with this very sobering passage. That, but I also wanted to, to bring it to a glorious culmination here that Peter had great confidence in his own personal experience with Christ. I want to encourage you with that. Well, God bless and uh, God be with you. You're dismissed.